You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. It's good to be back. Um, last week I had some uh, great time with family, and uh, it was good just to, to take a breather. Uh, last night uh, I texted some guys in my small group and asked them uh, to pray uh, for this message in particular, uh, a lot of research uh, in particular on, on the beginning of this message. And uh, guys in the group are texting back and forth, and they said, all right, we're going to pray for the Vols and Tim's message. And uh, the Vols did really well. I, I pray that this goes okay. I, uh, I want to begin a new series called um, the, the Four Pillars. And, and what we're doing is, is we looked at kind of four key corners or foundations for the church in particular. And we're going to spend a week tackling each of these. This week is the Bible. Next week's the gospel. Following week's the church, and the following week after that is mission. I want to begin on this topic about the Bible by making a statement, and that is everyone in this room, we have faith that fluctuates. Um, there are things that happen. Think about last year. Some things have happened that lift our faith. And there are definitely things that happen that, that flatten our faith. Today in particular, I want us to look at questions about the Bible, and I want us to think about addressing those questions that, that can give us confidence. Questions like this, how can we know everything written in the Bible is the way that it's supposed to be written after years of copying and translating before the printing press? That is a great question. Or how about this question? Can you provide historic resources that give evidence of events that happened in the Bible? That's another great question. Today, it's almost like uh, for the first, let's say, 16 to 19 minutes, I want to take a critical approach at, at many of the questions. It'll come across kind of academic. I want to look at a lot of those questions because sometimes those questions surface doubts for all of us. And I want us to receive encouragement so that we can trust the scriptures. Now, I've got a lot of information, so I'm going to have to talk fast. That means you're going to have to listen fast, all right? And so if, uh, if you've got a pen and paper, I'd suggest taking notes or pull out the notes app and jot some of these things down. Um, I want to begin with two statements. Number one is this. God went to great lengths to establish trust. He sent a son. And he wants us to experience a relationship with him that's established in trust. But in most cases, he wants us to experience it more than we do. There's reasons that all of us kind of have a faith that fluctuates. And that statement builds to this one. God wants you and I to come to an understanding of just how solid the Bible is. Because that's where we understand how he went to great lengths to extend and to build and to establish trust. So the Bible in itself isn't just um, spiritual jargon. It's not mystical or mythical stories. It's not just some life coach. It is actually filled with stuff that actually happened. It's solid. I want to read from Luke 1. I'm going to read this quite a few times today, but try to pay attention to this. Luke 1, many have undertaken, Luke says... To draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a Roman citizen that needs Jesus. So Luke is collecting all this data and writing to Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Uh, the Greek word for certainty is asphalizo, meaning solid. 
like established and certain and firm, dependable, something you can stand on. The Greek word, the reason I mention it, asphalizo, is we get an English word from that, and that's asphalt. It's like Luke is writing us to tell us, according to the text, he wants us to know the dependability of the things that we've been taught. Uh, I did something fun recently. I purchased one of these. Uh, This coin is 2,000 years old, and it does not cost as much as you would think. It is a Roman silver denarius. It is dated back to the time of Jesus. The character you see on the front, that's Tiberius Caesar. He was the emperor, emperor when Jesus was around. So when I hold that coin in my fingers, my imagination runs wild because someone else's fingers were on that coin in the days that Jesus walked Jerusalem. And the events of Jesus are just as solid as that coin. That's what Luke wants us to know. They are real, it is historical, they're actual events that are solid. And it's not just the New Testament as Luke writes, it's also the Old Testament, to which some can ask the question, well, how do I know that about the Old Testament? Well, it's because according to the New Testament, according to the claims of Jesus, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. The New Testament aren't just like standalones that are left in time and space. No, it is Jesus fulfilling everything about the Old Testament. Listen listen to Luke again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So it's like Luke's writing the New Testament and Jesus himself has fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. Luke would close the gospel of Luke by Jesus making a statement himself about, about this. He said to them, this is Jesus. This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled. That's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So that's the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So one of the reasons the Old Testament is so solid is because Jesus is so solid. And Jesus fulfills every bit of the Old Testament, and we see the certainty inside the New Testament. And we see it sealed with his death and resurrection from the dead. So we can have full confidence in the certainty of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's historically reliable. Real places, real times, and real events. Compare that to writings of other religions. Mention rituals, dreams and visions. Someone else said this, someone else said that, but you can't verify it. But when it comes to the writings of Jesus, the New Testament, the Old Testament, it is verifiable, historical facts. Listen again to Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, Luke's writing this guy, he says, hey, people actually saw this stuff. And he's writing to Theophilus, he's like, and if you want to talk to those people, they're still around. Verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. They're not just historical documents. It's also a religious text, but the two go hand in hand. Luke shows us how historical these documents are. Two chapters later, listen to the actual physical historical names he mentions. Luke 3, verse 1, in the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar. 
That's the guy on the coin. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and he goes on and on and on, he continues with a list of names. And it's interesting because since he included those names, we can pinpoint the actual date in history as 28 AD. To which some of us might say, well, why didn't he write 28 AD? Because Pope St. John hadn't established BC and AD until 525. So as Luke's writing, he's mentioning real names and real dates and real events based on their reign because the documents are certain and they are solid. That's on behalf, of the Old, on behalf of the New Testament. I want you to think now on behalf of the Old Testament, obviously written hundreds and a couple thousand years earlier, to which you have questions like, what about the evidence for there? Well, there is not as much physical evidence for all the events and locations in the Old Testament as the New Testament, but it's logical because it happened so much longer before. However, uh, let me throw out just a couple fun ones. I could have given you a bunch, but let me give you a couple fun ones. One is on behalf of King David. King David, even though there's thousands of verses that attribute to David and about David, there are some scholars that had questions on whether or not David existed, almost like some mythical character. Um, the reason was because they didn't have many facts on him outside of Scripture. But then in 1992, just up in the area of Galilee, this was discovered. One more piece of a monument that literally has the writings about the house of David the king. So that's a fun fact that you find. Well, that was Judah's first king, David. Um, if you know Bible history, you know there was a series of other kings, and Israel made some bad decisions, and their last king before Babylonian captivity was a guy named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim um, is the last king that gets captured by the king of Babylon, and an interesting that could be overlooked verse that has some details about this king and the Babylonian king take place at the end of 2 Kings 25. It's easy to get bored with these, but pay close attention. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year of Marduk, when he became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. So he's given a lot of historical detail, details. Verse 28. This king spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a seat of honor higher than those of other kings who were with him in Babylon. So this guy's got a special seat. Verse 29 and 30. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king of Babylon's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. So the Babylonian king shows extreme kindness to the last king of Judah named Jehoiakim by giving him an allotment or an allowance. Now, when you read the text, you're like, well, that's random, pretty precise. In 1917, in the area of Baghdad, this was discovered. And in this document, it has the specific allotment of the king of Babylon left to Jehoiakim in the amount of grain, oil, and wine verbatim. So isn't that pretty fascinating? That's just two random ones. That God would have us discover, in addition to the written text, Two artifacts that tell us about the first king of Judah and the last king of Judah. You know what that means? The Bible isn't about a galaxy far, far, far away. It isn't a book about myth or legend. 
It is in a story that took place in Middle Earth with a creature named Gandalf. It's historical. We can be certain of it. It is solid enough to stand on. So a series of questions. Number one, how do we get the text that we have? Better yet, you could ask it this way. Why were these books in the New Testament included and others weren't? Like Tim, we're reading from Luke. Uh, Why isn't there a gospel according to Thomas? I've heard about that Gnostic gospel. Uh, Why are we including this one? That's a great question. And we could go into a long answer, but for the sake of time, I want to give you a short answer. There is a common misconception about those New Testament books, the 27 books being selected around 420-something by Constantine. A lot of people think that, and let me tell you why they think that. Because there was a book written several years ago by a guy named Dan Brown that sold 82 million copies, and they made the statement. Uh, Let me give you some technical jargon about Dan Brown's stuff. It's entertaining, but it is absolutely stupid. Constantine didn't decree it, even if he did decree it. The early Christians, think about this. We have documents. The early Christians were already reading, writing, teaching, meditating on all the books of the Bible way before Constantine came into the story. And this was their filter for the New Testament. They wanted to make sure that it was being written inside the first century by apostles, meaning people that were right there with Jesus or other men that were selected by the apostles to write a letter. So the New Testament includes first century text describing a faith in Jesus. And these texts were widely known to be written by an apostle or someone accredited by an apostle. That's why you got books by John, by Peter, by Paul. They were the apostles, the eyewitnesses. Now, there's another book that was kind of intriguing as I studied. Um, the early church loved a book that was written. And it was titled The Gospel of Barnabas. Uh, many loved the book and they thought it was the Barnabas that was mentioned as a traveling companion of Paul in the book of Acts. What was crazy is even in the first couple hundred years, I guess it was 300, they included it in those 27 books. They made it number 28, but they put it as an appendix. Um, But later, they took it out. For the same reason they took out Thomas. They realized both were written in the second century. So understand this. The 27 books that we have, they're the right books. Another great question. How do we know the manuscripts of these 27 books have been accurately preserved? I mean, Tim, after all, if you think about it, they were handwritten over and over and over. Back then, there was no printing press. I mean, Tim, as one of those guys is writing, is there a chance he could be just like me, doze off, leave a word out, write the same word twice, or maybe intentionally leave some words out? That too is a great question. I want to give you a short answer, and this is not just a church answer. This is a regular answer. We can have confidence that the text is reliable because we have so many copies. When you have so many copies and you line them up and examine and compare them, you can detect variations from one to the next. You can see where they skipped a word or they skipped a line. And in its entirety, you can still conclude accurately that the texts are reliable. I'll give you an example. Uh, From the first century, there is a well-known book written in Rome 
that is well attested as a text. It's called Virgil's Aeneid. I want you to see, no one asks questions about this book. Everybody's like, that's what it is. It had three complete manuscripts. There were seven substantial manuscripts that were handwritten, meaning 75 pages or more. There were 20 fragments written, like one page or two page. And no one asks any questions of the validity of what's in that book. Now let's compare it to the New Testament. 60 completed handwritten manuscripts. 340 substantial manuscripts of 75 pages or more. And over 4,000 fragments. I'm telling you, it's reliable, it's certain, it's solid, you can stand on it. Another question. How close in time were the New Testament texts written? I mean, Tim, after all, if they waited a few hundred years, couldn't they have forgot some stuff? Couldn't they have added some stuff? Um, once again, that idea is kind of pinpointed by a lot of um, even some of Dan Brown's writings, once again. How about Luke? What did Luke say? According to Luke, on behalf of his letter, they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Luke says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account. It was like, man, I talked to the eyewitnesses. They're still there. Go chat with them. Paul would even say the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Luke would be, could make the statement because Luke is living in Jerusalem around 40 something AD. And that means the time frame in which even Luke wrote his letter is just like 10, 15, maybe 20 years max from the dates of Jesus. Now that is a very, very, very close time frame on behalf of ancient documents, according to scholars. You say, how close? Well, let me show you some examples. You got Alexander the Great, you got Tiberius, the guy on the coin, and you got Jesus. The earliest biographies written on Alexander the Great were 120 years after Alexander the Great. The earliest documents handwritten that we have on Tiberius were written 80 years after Tiberius, the guy on the coin. On behalf of Jesus, 20 to 60, maybe 70 years. You know what that means? Even the latest New Testament texts that are included are closer in time to Jesus than the best ancient documents document on Tiberius Caesar who lived at the same time as Jesus. It is not a myth. It is not a galaxy far, far, far away. It is not from Middle Earth with Gandalf. It is solid. It is certain. It's like asphalt. You can walk on it. That's the academic part. Now for the time remaining, I just want to get practical. Because there is a word that is tied to every one of us in this room after all that has been said. The word is but. But what if you deal with a lot of doubt? Like you're on board with it. But every once in a while you wonder, You don't quite know the certainty, in the words of Luke, of the things that you were taught. Two questions. Does that make you a bad Christian? Or are you a Christian at all? I'd like to spend 
the remaining moments talking about that issue, the issue of doubt. I believe there's a lot of confusion about doubt among Christians. There's probably a lot of guilt on behalf of some of you in this room. Even on those that are not yet following Jesus, I think there is a misunderstanding on the part that doubt plays. I want to make some clarifying statements. Number one, some people confuse saving faith with absolute certainty. They ain't the same thing. Um, Trusting in Jesus, surrendering your life in Jesus is not the same thing as absolute 100% intellectual honesty. Even James, the brother of Jesus, said this. James 2.19, you believe there's one God? Absolute certainty? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James is like, hey, the demons are 100% certain there is a God, but there is no such thing as a surrendered life to Jesus, according to the demons. Saving faith is surrendering our lives to the one, the Son of God, Jesus, that is revealed in the New Testament and fulfilled in the Old Testament. In other words, it is possible to have no doubts about the Bible and Christianity and Jesus and not have saving faith. For some in this room, your intelligence can be a trap to discovering truth. For some in this room, your IQ can be a path to avoiding the obvious. But on the flip side, it is possible to have doubts and still have saving faith. Still relying on Jesus is my only hope. I love the story in the Gospel of Mark where a father comes to Jesus because he wants his son healed physically. His son is close to death. And the father comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus if he will heal his son. And Jesus makes a statement. He says, if you believe, sure thing, I'll heal him. I love the dad's words. I relate. Mark 9, 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, there's a little bit of unbelief in there. Jesus doesn't say, you're a bad Christian. Jesus doesn't say, hey, why don't you come back to me when you got absolute certainty? Now, Jesus heals his son because even people that have legitimate doubts can still have saving faith. So that's statement number one. Statement number two, clarifying statement on doubt. Some people struggle with doubt because they don't do what the Bible says. There are some people in this room, periodically there have been times in my life where I'm legit struggling with doubt. And the Bible says it's because when I read the text, I'm either ignoring the text because I'm like, this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm thinking, oh, that doesn't mean what it really says. James said something about this as well. James 1.6. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 7. That person that's doubting is blown around, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, the context of James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, James is writing on behalf of Christians that are desperate. They've been scattered. They're in need of help. They're in need of 
uh, someone to do something for them or someone, someone to give something to them. You read chapter one and two and you see that. And what James is saying is there's a group of Christians that he's writing to that even though they are told to financially do something above and beyond, they are told to go out of their way to serve widows and orphans. They're not doing it. He says, you're like a guy that looks in the mirror, sees something that needs changing, you don't do it. James says, you are unstable, you are double-minded. No wonder you're struggling with doubt. There are some of us in this room that when the Bible says some things pretty clear about issues that we don't like because we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, and we just read over it or think, man, it doesn't apply today. James says, you're gonna struggle with doubt. So what do you do if you're that type of person? Well, two things. Number one, doubt your doubts. And number two, according to scripture, you got to change the way you think. The Bible word is repent. The Greek word is metanoia. Listen to Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Like let your thinking match the thinking of the text. Then you'll be able to determine God's will for you. So that's clarifying statement number two. Clarifying statement number three on behalf of doubt. Some people struggle because they have a legitimate intellectual hang-up. Meaning there are times for all of us, myself included, where your spiritual confidence will take a hit. You'll read or hear some argument against the truth of Scripture and you'll be taken out at the knees. It could be a documentary. It could be an article. It could be a a book, it could be a movie, it could be some professor, it could be some intelligent high Q person that makes a statement. Uh, it could be someone that you love, like a parent. It could be somebody that you look up to. Let's say it's a pastor and all of a sudden he renounces everything and it literally jars you to the point where you're, you're bothered because there's an element of your faith that's taken an intellectual hit. Here's what I wanna say about those doubts, ready? Don't, don't feel so bad about that type of doubt. Instead, ready, do some research, investigate. The Bible says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Guess what else? Love the Lord your God with all your, your mind. So when you come across something that somebody's proven or made a statement on, research, go somewhere, ask questions, investigate, because there are smart people. They love Jesus and know the Bible's reliable. That have examined the same things and they've given clear answers. I'm telling you, there are smart people. There are some nerdy people that know what's up. So go do some research. Don't be lazy. Too often, like in college, you'll be sitting in a class and you hear some statement and you're just taken out at the knees. Understand, use your brain. Go do some research. Ask some questions, read some books. Fourth observation and then we're done. Some people struggle with doubt because they're nervous, legit, about taking a significant spiritual step of obedience. Like you know you need to do something, the Bible makes it clear, but there's something in your brain, we've all got it, it's like this natural mental mechanism. It's there to protect us from some kind of risky behavior. Like you heard a cold feet at a wedding? Like people are convinced they're gonna marry this person and then the day of the wedding or it gets close to the wedding and they're like, man, I just don't know if this is it. It's like, is this risky? Like, should I really be doing this? Or let me get more practical on behalf of myself. Um, Y'all have heard my opinions on flights. I'm not a big 
fan of planes. Forgive me, pilots and stewardess and everybody else. I'm sorry. Um, let's, let's say I'm going somewhere and I buy the ticket and I block off the dates. I know that thing ain't going to crash. I spent the money. I blocked off the dates. But for some reason, as soon as I get on that plane, I start to think that plane's going to crash. That's like that stupid mental mechanism that kicks in. It's like, hey, we were kind of meant to be walking on the ground. This thing's going up in the air. Okay, that same thing. Ready? It shows its ugly head. When it comes to us discovering in Scripture something that we need to do in order to be obedient to God. But our brain starts playing tricks on us. Like some in this room. You're at a point where you need to give your life to Jesus. Like surrender control. And your brain pushes back. Like, you don't have all your questions answered yet. Others in the room, you're like, man, like, like uh, Luke and Elijah and earlier Jocelyn, they, they got baptized to show that they followed Jesus and they just want to make a public demonstration. You need to get baptized by immersion. You saw how beautiful and simple it is. You read it, but something in your brain is like, man, there's so many people. What's everybody going to think? Others in the room, like when you read what the Bible has to say about finances, like this whole concept of tithing, a tenth, 10%. Something in your brain checks in. It's like, man, that means I'd have to live only on 90%. Others in the room, when you hear about this issue of encouragement and accountability and you realize it ain't going to happen in a room this size. People aren't missing you. People don't know your names. I mean, look around. But getting in a group, you know what's needed. But you're like, man... That means I'll have to be known. That means somebody's going to have to hear about my, my struggles. Others in this room, like when it comes to the, the, the promise about, about serving, the privilege of serving, and you read this and you think, that's going to be a lot of time. I mean, that's a commitment. Even if it's every other week or a couple times a month, there is something in your brain over and over when you read the Bible and you see what to do that asks the question, hey, are you sure about that? And we've got a little bit of doubt that shows up. And I'm telling you, if that's happening to you on, on behalf of any of that list that I just went through, can I tell you what to do? Take a deep breath and embrace this verse. Psalm 145, verse 13. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and he is faithful in all he does. One more thing. I know I've wore Luke out, but I got to peek at him one more time. Luke 1 verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. I need you to notice something very important, significant about that verse. Notice what the text does not say. It does not say so that you may be certain. Because it's not about you being certain. It's about the certainty of the text. In other words, it's not about how solid your faith in Jesus is. It's about how solid Jesus is, period. Because like I said at the beginning, my faith, your faith, it often fluctuates. I'm telling you, like, it could be a bad week and my faith struggling. Like sometimes it's lifted and sometimes it's flattened. My emotions go crazy. I don't know about you. Like good weeks, good bad, bad days. 
could be tied to something you ate the night before. It's just like stupid, right? Faith fluctuates. Could be, you know, I'm doing great reading the Bible. I'm great involved in church. I'm great in obedience. And all of a sudden, some proof comes out and you're like, ah. Faith has a, has a pattern of fluctuating. Sometimes it's lifted and sometimes it flattens. But today, I want you to remember this. On behalf of the Bible, it is infinitely more trustworthy than you or I am trusting. You can be certain. You can be solid. It's something worth standing on. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for today. And thank you for time that we get to take a little academic approach at reading about the certainty of the text. God, that part's so essential because it reminds us why every Sunday we, we come in this room and we read about parables, we read about verses, we read about the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, we read about other, other Bible characters, we study books. God, it's because it's solid. We can stand on it. It speaks to life, it speaks to marriage, it speaks to relationships, it speaks to finances, it speaks to everything. It is not some myth, it is not some legend, it is not about a galaxy far, far away. And I want to thank you that, that Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus was documented by eyewitnesses. And we can stand solid on the New Text, Testament texts. And that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection fulfilled everything that was stated in the Old Testament text. And therefore, we have this book filled with truth. It shapes the way we live. For those in this room, God, struggling with doubt, I pray that many would understand you don't have to be absolutely certain to have saving faith. There are still questions that we bring into faith. I pray for those in the room that are struggling with doubt because they're doing something stupid. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible says they should be doing. I pray for those in this room, God, that have been taken out at the knees by some kind of fact or some news or some documentary. May they love the Lord with all their brain. And I pray for those in the room that are just doubting because they're nervous. The brain's kicked in and told them, are you sure about that? Give them the courage to do whatever you want them to do, that next step. And before you leave today, my prayer is this. As you walk back into that Main Street hallway, you'd stop by the the next steps wall, or even at the end of the service, you'd come forward to the right. And you'd talk to one of us. You'd fill out a, a sheet of paper just so we could follow up with you on whatever the doubt is. God, I just ask that you would, um, you would do something special today. And I pray this in Jesus' name.